Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu. I'm your host, Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House. You're with a sentimental Charles Goulon. Sentimental? Sentimental. You mean I'm 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 kind of floating in a sea of schmaltz right now. I yeah, I guess so. I think I'm really nostalgic and, and thinking of the good old days. The old times, the old days, the long road passing through. I think so. It's sort of a continuation of retrospective of last week, if you will. You're kind of stuck in the past. I see. I see. So so I'm a little bit like Benny Goodman, the sentimental gentleman of swing. Is that what you're saying? Yes. I see. So, well, this time of year, you know, the autumn. Had our first snowfall today. Um, thinking of Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, old Lang Syne. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I'm feeling sentimental. That's good. I believe in spring. Spring is the cruelest of months. Uh-huh. Uh, the cruelest of seasons. Sorry. Thank you very much. Yeah. It's the cruelest of, of months. Man. <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's an easy mistake to make in a place with only two seasons. That's very true. Hot and rainy. It's all you got. Yeah. Here we have four seasons, and we are going into winter. In the immortal words of the late, great Nat King Cole, I can hear old winter's song. Indeed, I can, whispering outside, reminding me of childhood and beckoning on to old age. Peggy Sue got married. It's true. You know the film. Um, No. Is that Betty Davis? No, who is that? Yeah, Kathleen Turner. <laughs> a little different. 1986. She plays a uh, a chick who goes back in time at her, uh, she passes out at her 25th reunion from high school in 1985, goes back to 1960. And there's a lot of sentimentality and schmaltz in that movie, but never more than when she visits her grandparents. Very schmaltzy. Mm. You like schmaltz. Uh, yeah, I do. I think uh, Schmaltz is going to get a revival, you know, because everyone's kind of too cool for school right now. And uh, so that's kind of, it's it's not, Schmaltzy is not very popular right now, you know? Well, we got to dive into the Schmaltz. We got to, we got to have a double layer of Schmaltz, I think. The, I think Schmaltz might save America. Wow. That's a strong statement. Can you justify well, that? I can't justify it. Think of Thanksgiving and Christmas. Think of the things that bind this country together. Think of Easter, St. Patrick's Day, and Valentine's Day. Think of the American Legion and, and, and the Knights of Columbus and the Elks. Schmaltz everywhere. I think we need more schmaltz. I think those who have traditionally generated it have to start working double time, double shifts, pouring out the schmaltz. 
I, I think Disney has to be re retrofitted, literally. I think that's the term for groups like the Knights or the American Legion or Disney that have kind of lost their way. Retrofitted for schmaltz the, is exactly the word. Th that, that is exactly the word, retrofitted. Yeah. They need to be retrofitted to generate as much schmaltz as possible. And people should start learning to talk in, in, in platitudes. That's a dangerous proposition. No, not necessarily. I mean, <laughs> give me something radical that some moron has said recently. Ooh, wow! There's so many. <laughs> so much. And, well, you from. know, the all the the words that and phrases that just flooded into my mind when you said that. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure it's it's it's, it's like like being bombarded all at once by a thousand speakers um okay but, uh i'm not a big fan of books author authors be all wordy and stuff oh uh, well kanye west no i remember the book fairs when i was a kid in school you know in the bookmobile and i i think of um boy i'm, I'm starting to do vocal fry isn't that weird uh i think of ray bradbury you know and the libraries, the citadels of learning, and how wonderful it was to get out of the heat, get into the cool of the library. Now, when I was a little kid, you know, there'd be the the librarians telling stories. They weren't drag queens. And it was an amazing thing, an amazing time. And I think if you think reading isn't worth your while, well, probably you just haven't been kicked hard enough in the head. <laughs> wow. Well, that started with Schmaltz, but it didn't end there. Okay. Even, well, yeah. Even I, I, yeah. Even I need more Schmaltz. Yeah. Because I should have smoothed it over. Yeah. I should have said, well, you know, you don't have to stay ignorant. You could better yourself. You could learn to read. You could become a real credit to your community. You could become the sort of man, the sort of decent individual that everyone wants to be. You don't have to stay the way you are. You could become a worthwhile member of society. You know, it's funny because there's like some, this is so strange because there's like some weird virtue there where you're you're doing charity but charity is like got this schmaltzy goo all over it and <laughs> yeah, it's also kind of nasty if you think about what i've just said you could be a worthwhile member of society what does that mean you are right now <laughs> I really do. I mean, I'm I'm thinking of piano bars, you know. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of of tea rooms in big downtown department stores, and ladies in gloves and dresses taking tea and cucumber sandwiches. Doesn't that strike you? It's a beautiful image. 
Yeah. And, you know, guys after work getting together in the local snug, drinking away and toasting. Well, you know, that, that kind of connects to the, the, um, the, the question that I really liked. One of my all-time favorite questions this year on the, um, what is it? The third place, the third place, right? Like the eradication of the third place to, to some extent that is a huge, um, that's eradicated schmaltz, right? Well, indeed, indeed, because third place, third places were often great breeding grounds of schmaltz. Yeah. For one thing, uh, schmaltz often comes out when you've had some booze. <laughs> true, no, true it, that. It, true that. It is. I mean, if depending on the mood, you know, obviously, because booze is a mood enhancer. But if you're already in kind of a schmaltzy mood, like it's close to a holiday, or you're celebrating somebody's birthday or graduation, or if somebody comes in who hasn't been there for a long time, or somebody dies, you know. Any, any one of those things can trigger a real schmaltz episode in a given third place. So, you know, we're all just sitting around, the drinks are flowing, and then someone comes in. You know, Pat Westlake died. Oh, gee, Pat. You remember Pat? And everyone's like, oh, God. Yeah. Pat. When's the last time Pat was in here anyway? Oh, it's got to be months ago since he took sick. Yeah, good old Pat. You remember he was always at the VFW on the 4th of July. He was always behind the bar. Yeah. Uh, old Pat. And so it goes. That's but very familiar. Go, That's a very familiar scenario. Um, well, yeah. But it can, go, it can go the other way. Hey, everybody. You remember uh, Bob Slocum? Yeah. His daughter, Angie, just had a kid. Little Angie? Yes, yes. He's a he's a grandfather now. Can you believe it? Uh, no, I can't. My God. Angie, I I gosh, I didn't. Really, it seems like yesterday she graduated from high school. Well, you know, she's been married four years now. It's about time. Well, here's to the new babe. And so it goes. Those are pretty spot on reenactments, to be honest. Well, got that nailed. Taken out of a lifetime, or or there's more, 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 more where that came from. Hey, everybody! Dick Thompson's nephew, Bob, he's getting married. Bob's getting married. Who's he getting married to? Oh, I don't know. Some girl he met at college. Oh, that's amazing. When are they getting married? About a month or two. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll all get invitations. But isn't that amazing? Yeah, boy, they're getting married. That's great. That's great. Dick must be really, really proud. Oh, geez. Over the, over the air. I mean, he never thought Bob was going to get married. And, you know, after his brother died, he, he was, you know, Bob was his ward. So it, this, this is really a great thing for all of them. And so it goes. And so it goes. And so it goes. And all over the country, nay, all over the planet, such scenes are constantly reenacted. The trick is to emphasize them. Make them something more than passing moments. Make them a mood, a national mood, an international mood. No more weapons, only schmaltz. Wow. 
oh, that Jack Frost would visit both Russia and Ukraine and spirit away all the weapons and unload vodka and meat for all the Russians and Ukrainians to drink and sing and be happy. Well, I don't know. I mean, it sounds good to begin with. But be, you know what they say, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> what, a, a world of schmaltz? A world of, of schmaltz, but someone's going to weaponize the schmaltz. There's going to be perversions well, of schmaltz. Well, people who don't accept schmaltz have to be helped with their issues. They have to be assisted. Oh. You see, okay. like the first person who uh, could become a worthwhile member of society if he wasn't such an idiot, idiotic fool. But Schmaltz can cure him. S sounds like snake oil to me. <laughs> <laughs> snake oil? Let me tell you something. I have, <laughs> I have already accepted. I've already accepted. A tax exempt status for my new Schmaltz Institute. <laughs> We're going to be training people in the acquisition of Schmaltz and its distribution. How you can use Schmaltz in your everyday life. Well, you're really I getting mean, the jump on this. You're 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 not weaponizing it. You're monetizing it. I will that too. <laughs> I mean, I mean, think of it. All across America, right now, you've had this experience. You come home and there's your wife, right? Yeah. And you probably come in, you say hello, maybe you give her a quick peck on the cheek, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And then maybe you sit down, talk a little bit, unwind, etc. All sound true? Yeah. How much better? She flings open the door. You rush into each other's arms. You shriek, darling, I've missed you. She says, I couldn't bear it without you. The low music is playing. The lights are low. Uh, cocktails at the ready. See? <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. That's. Uh... It would certainly make things different, now, wouldn't it? That's one way to say it. Yeah. And this could be multiplied a thousand times. When you have office meetings, right? Instead of just having the usual office meetings you have up there on the tower. Well, for one thing, you might consider changing the form of address. Instead of just Vinny or Vincenzo or Don Vinny, VF, as in write VF, like that, you know, so that you, the, the corporate drones and dronettes can, can, you know, act as though they're, they're doing business stuff. Wow. Uh, that's a bit much for me. All right. Well, then we'll, then we'll skip it. Schmaltz in business might be a little tough. Th that's a tough one. Yeah. Let's... Well, not necessarily. How about a Christmas club for all the employees? What, what does that entail? Well, basically, uh, each of them commits to a small amount of their salary going into a Christmas club account in a bank with extra high... Uh, um, interest and then uh, a week before christmas they get their money back twofold threefold and then they can spend it on christmas gifts why do they even that doesn't even make any sense 
Oh, it, it, it was a big thing when I was a kid. That makes no sense, right? So they put money into an account and then they get it back twofold, threefold. Well, was and you earned some interest. Why did they even need to put it away? Like, why don't you just get a Christmas bonus? I don't get it. That doesn't. <sighs> All right, I can see we've got to do another that, history. That, that literally makes no sense. Like, like the the depositing of of funds into an account. So that you can take it out two to three months later, twofold and threefold. That literally, those are two unrelated things. One does not right. beget the other, unless you're right. like funding Pablo Escobar. All right. <laughs> listen, listen closely. Uh, okay. All right. Are you ready? Okay. A Christmas club is a special purpose savings account first offered by various banks and credit unions of the United States beginning in the early 20th century, including the Great Depression, under which bank customers deposit a set amount of money each week into a savings account and receive the money back at the end of the year for Christmas shopping. You with me? I mean, okay, the, so, okay. The, uh, the first known... Uh, the uh, the first known Christmas club started in 1909 when Merkel Landis, treasurer of the Carlisle Trust Company of Carlisle, Pennsylvania, introduced the first Christmas savings fund. The club attracted 350 customers who saved about $28 each, and the money was dispersed on December 1st of that year. See? The Christmas club. Um, of course, they don't actually have them anymore. Okay, so that's uh, okay. I guess I understand it in that context. So it's like you're saving money during the year, you're putting it away so you can expend it on Christmas, Christmas. gifts. Okay. Exactly. And that just to just to show you again, because I know you need visuals. And if this doesn't do help you with your schmaltz and business, nothing will. Okay, Charles is giving me an image. Allentown Trust Company. Oh, that's right near my relatives. I love Allentown. No entrance fee. Join the club. We invite you to join the Christmas club. Wow. Is that, is that schmaltzy enough for you? That's very schmaltzy. That's very you. Um, it's very on brand for you because it's something absolutely beloved and popular that's now dead. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Man. <laughs> No wonder I'm sentimental. <laughs> <laughs> now dead. Dude, you know what I saw in Jeopardy? You're they, really delicate. They asked, um, I keep seeing uh, Product 19 references. See? All the time. And because uh, we were watching Jeopardy and Ken Jennings said that was his favorite cereal and I almost died. I was like, wow, this is an actual thing. This isn't just some sort of Charles Coulomb special product thing. Um, <laughs> no. Product 19 was great. And there is a lot of stuff that isn't here anymore that was great. Boy, and I, I don't mind saying it. <laughs> I don't mind saying it one bit. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> I don't you know, know why I, that I don't know why that got to me. And you uh, know what else? I miss Yule Hauser, and I miss Ralph's story, and I don't care who knows that. <laughs> yes. I actually, re I, I'm recording him. I never knew his show was actually called California's Gold. 
It um, was. Yeah. Uh, just another, uh, uh, yet another example of California's gold. So, some of the episodes are pretty boring. He goes to, like, really, really a stretch. This one, it's just kind of like a barn. But he, nevertheless, he does his classic, that's amazing. <laughs> he, was, not, he, was, he was amazed. <laughs> even if it was so mundane, in my humble opinion. Um, he was always amazed. And, you know, it's hard to believe, but in January of this coming year, he will have been gone 10 years. Wow. And you know the the uh, the classic PBS special about Los Angeles, things that aren't here anymore, which you could freely get online, narrated by the late great Ralph Story. I as soon as that thing came out, I got a copy of it on VHS, having seen it on PBS. I got a VHS copy. Get it? Yeah. In 1995. Hmm. That's pushing 30 years ago. Wow. And it feels like yesterday that I got that thing. And mind you, it was talking about all the stuff that had vanished from L.A. at that time. You know, your brother's prom was at one of my favorite places in the city. What? The Ambassador Hotel's late lamented Coconut Grove. Hmm. And I miss the Ambassador Hotel, if you want to know. Yeah, that's right. And I miss the trails. I miss Barbados. And I miss Lockover in Boston. Bahuka. Oh, yes, I miss the Bahuka with that huge fish. I'll say I miss the Bahuka. Man. <sighs> so you see, Schmaltz although it can be weaponized and monetized, is utterly essential today more than ever. Mm. I mean, you should be able to look at the White House as schmaltz, but you can't look at Biden or actually any of his predecessors clear back to Reagan. Reagan knew how to use schmaltz. He was the king of schmaltz, was Ronald Reagan. Mm. I mean... He, well, I'll give my, my favorite example. I'll give you an example of Schmaltz in action. Uh, this is Ronald Reagan's farewell speech. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a, a really, a really good line. Um, he, um, he said, uh, let's see, where are we? Uh, the, uh, ah, here we go. He says, he ends it by saying, uh, finally, there's a great tradition of warnings and presidential farewells. And I've got one that's been on my mind for some time. But oddly enough, it starts with one of the things I'm proudest of in the past eight years. The resurgence of national pride that I call the new patriotism. This national feeling is good, but it won't count for much. 
and it won't last unless it's grounded in thoughtfulness and knowledge. And informed patriotism is what we want. And are we doing a good enough job teaching our children what America is and what she represents the long history of the world? Those of us who are over 35 years or so of age grew up in a different America. We were taught very directly what it means to be an American. And we absorbed, almost in the air, a love of country and an appreciation of its institutions. If you didn't get these things from your family, you got them from the neighborhood, from the father down the street who fought in Korea, or the family who lost someone in Anzio. Or you could get a sense of patriotism from school. And if all else failed, you could get a sense of patriotism from the popular culture. The movies celebrated democratic values and implicitly reinforced the idea that America was special. TV was like that, too, through the mid-60s. But now, we're about to enter the 90s, and some things have changed. Younger parents aren't sure that an unambivalent appreciation of America is the right thing to teach modern children. And for those who create the popular culture, well-grounded patriotism is no longer the style. Our spirit is back, but we haven't reinstitutionalized it. We've got to do a better job of getting across that America is freedom, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of enterprise, and freedom is special and rare. It needs protection. So we've got to teach history based not what's in fashion, but what's important. Why the pilgrims came here, who Jimmy Doolittle was, and what those 30 seconds over Tokyo meant. You know, four years ago on the 40th anniversary of D-Day, I read a letter from a young woman writing to her late father who'd fought on Omaha Beach. Her name was Lisa Zanetta Hen, and she said, we will always remember, we will never forget what the boys of Normandy did. Well, let's help her keep her word. If we forget what we did, we won't know who we are. I'm warning of an eradication of the American memory that could result ultimately in an erosion of the American spirit. Let's start with some basics more attention to American history, and a greater emphasis on civic ritual. The great communicator. The great communicator. But that was Schmaltz. Yeah. It was true, but it was Schmaltz. Hmm. And, of course, being very sentimental as I am, uh, the whole bit about, uh, you know, the, the, the uncle at, in, who'd fought in Korea, the family who lost someone at Anzio. I mean, that really mm-hmm. concrete. What, what's the term for what Trump does? Um, where, when he does like, <laughs> yell and shriek, <laughs> no, like, like sleepy Joe lion Hillary, um, where he, you know, he, he just kind of has fun. You know what I mean? He just kind of. No. That's it's called stick. calling it shtick. Shtick. Yeah. Shtick. There we go. That shtick, which is a whole other, a whole other kettle of wax. I'll take schmaltz over shtick. I'll take schmaltz over stick, shtick. But I feel like you made this point, um, perhaps just privately to me. But politicians don't even bother to do that. Well, yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Neither, that, like they don't give us, they don't even give us a song and dance anymore, right? Yeah, like I'm no. trying to remember, like. Uh, one of my favorite movies, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And uh, Papio Daniel, <laughs> where, you know, the climactic part of the movie is where he gets up and 
he dances and he sings, uh, you know, you are my son, my, my sunshine. And, you know, then he gets elected. But he, un- you know, that was like the nature of politics. Whereas like, I don't know, now it's just like, well, are, are you going to send me a check for $500 for inflation relief or whatever? If not, I'm not going to vote for you. I don't know. It just seems so... Um, pathetic. Well, I mean, both the political classes and the electorate are corrupt. So that's part of the problem. Hmm. And of course, uh, Pappy McDaniels was based on a real character whose name escapes me. But he's a governor of Louisiana. And he wrote, You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine. Oh. Uh, Let me see if I... I I can't remember his name, but I will... He... um, that's a great factoid right there. Thank you, Charles. Well, see, I, I knew something. He... So uh, did he do that with like a political, you know, like. Jimmy, a... Jimmy Davis. That was the one. Jimmy Davis. Wow. Uh, Jimmy Davis, uh, December 11th, 1899 to November 5th, 2000, was an American politician, singer, and songwriter of both sacred and popular songs. Uh, Davis was elected for new co- two non-consecutive terms from 1944 to 1948 and from 1960 to 64 as governor of his native Louisiana. And he, it says, uh, Davis, um, it says, oh boy, he did both gospel and uh, raunchy blues. But it says, uh, Davis often performed during his uh, campaign stops when running for governor of Louisiana. After being elected in 1944, he was known, uh, he became known as the singing governor. While governor, he had a number one hit single in 1945 with There's a New Moon Over My Shoulder. Oh, so when Papio Daniel goes to the radio um, place for that, what, flower hour with Papio Daniel, because <laughs> I guess politicians would sponsor actual products or something. And that was the well, they, thing. they get sponsored or they get sponsored. Um, but I mean, it's public, right? Like they're they're yeah. they're brazenly associated yeah. with a product. <laughs> well, um, you know, you, you got to sell this stuff somehow. And if that weren't bad enough. You've also got uh, Jimmy Walker, who was the mayor of New York, uh, and his administration, not he himself, but his administration was pretty corrupt. But you know what swept him into office? What? He wrote a song uh, 20 years before he became mayor called, Will You Love Me in December as You Did in May? Hmm. Wow. Will you love me in December as you did in May? Will you love me in the true good old-fashioned way? And whenever he came into a nightclub or something when he was mayor, the bands would play that. Wow. Um. Schmaltz, my lad, schmaltz. From Tammany Hall to Huey Long's, Louisiana. Schmaltz. Hmm. What's the St. Patrick's Day parade in New York? What's Disneyland? Schmaltz. Hmm. I guess so. Yeah. What do you, you know, uh, uh, 
Main Street, USA. Yeah. The section of Disneyland as you come in, right? Yeah. Pure schmaltz. It isn't the Midwest in the early 20th century. It is the Midwest that Walt Disney remembered. Interesting. Similarly, Ray Bradbury, great man, but all of his Greentown stories, good deal of schmaltz. Not so much at Fahrenheit 451, but a lot of schmaltz hmm. in places. Dandelion Wine, one of my favorite of his novels, schmaltz. All right. Um, do you feel schmaltzy now? Yes, I do. All right. So past the 30-minute mark, we've time to, time to move on to the next segment. Oh, well, you know, I remember when we first started out doing the show five years ago. By the way, this is our 250th uh, uh, episode. I noticed that, too. We're halfway to 500. Yep, halfway to 500, ladies and gentlemen. And you helped us get there. Yeah. It was a hard struggle at first. I remember the first tin cans we had to use to broadcast to one another across the street. And I'll never forget the collection of, of baseball cards you had to sell to buy those first microphones. We started out at the bottom, but we've gone all the way to the top. <laughs> Are you feeling schmaltzy now? <laughs> yeah, the tear in your eye. <laughs> you know, I actually was a huge baseball card collector in the early 90s. And, um, and it's funny because my, our first microphones, I know. <laughs> I know. I, I actually still have all of mine. Um, it's just weird because I don't. It feels weird to sell them or just go and I don't know. It just, but I always imagined that like by this time, certainly I would have made uh, a lot of wealth on my baseball cards. I'm sure you have <laughs> that. Your Mickey Mantle card alone, your Lou Gehrig card that, signed. I don't have those. I only have a Hank Aaron, actually, Hank Aaron. But um, but yeah. Uh, excuse me. Who was telling the story? You or me? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you go continue with my story. Thank you. We, you <laughs> see, we've had these issues before. <laughs> There's so many parts of your life that only you can know about. <laughs> they really need a lot of assistance from me. <laughs> I mean, who could forget hiring a private jet the night of your prom? Who could forget? Uh, I certainly don't remember it, but never mind. All right, you probably got other stuff going out of this razzmatazz. That's for sure. State of the week. Are Ooh, you ready? I are. Missouri. We've not done Missouri before? We have somehow not done Missouri. The great state of Missouri. Are you sure? I am pretty sure. I have an Excel sheet. Um, we've done Michigan, Montana, Maryland, Massachusetts. Illinois, Indiana recently, Arizona. I do not see Missouri on this. Maine. All right. All right. That's fine. Missouri is a great state. We <laughs> will start out with St. Louis, Missouri. 
And I've got to say, St. Louis, it's a town I've only visited a handful of times, but I really like it. Even the toasted ravioli to be uh, deliciously eaten on the hill, the, uh, you know, Italian section. The uh, old cathedral down by the uh, arch, the gateway to the west, which was founded by the French, of course. The new cathedral, which is just a, a riot of mosaic. Beautiful, beautiful place. Washington Park, Soldiers and Sailors Monument, I think it is, or the, the Veterans uh, Museum, whatever. I, I can't remember the name exactly. But it's, again, one of the many things downtown. Um, the uh, Jesuit uh, University there, again, the name I don't remember, but it's an interesting place. Uh, St. Louis. Soulard Market. Can't forget that. But once you're finished with St. Louis, there are a lot of things to see in the burbs. Florissant is a beautiful little town. Uh, and there you'll find St. Ferdinand Shrine, where Father de Smet had his headquarters. St. Charles, Missouri, with the uh, Shrine of St. Rose Philippine Duchesne. These are all very close to, uh, very, very close to uh, St. Louis. But you go down south along the river, and you will come to the old uh, area around St. Genevieve in Perryville. Perryville has the National Shrine of the Miraculous Medal. St. Genevieve, heavy French influence. And on New Year's, they do the Guinane. You go inland from there, and you come to another French area, centered on a little town called Old Mines. And Rich Woods, Rolla, all those areas... Uh, speak a sort of French or spoke. It's probably nearly extinct now, but it, it, till in recent living memory, they still spoke French in that part of Missouri. Uh, Jefferson City is the capital. I've been there only a couple of times. Uh, it has a capital building, of course, and various government buildings. Kansas City, Missouri, has the um, uh, World War One monument, uh, and south of it is Independence. Now, Independence, Kansas City, Missouri, also I should say has a lot of jazz clubs. Are used to downtown. Um, for a little south of that, you've got Independence, which has two major draws. One, uh, various sites could, uh, around Harry Truman. America needs you, Harry Truman. Well, if you think that, you want to go to Independence. But Independence has something even more important. Independence, Missouri, has a place in prophecy. Because when Christ returns to earth, he will build the temple, not in Jerusalem, but in Independence, Missouri. Um... How did you hear this? What do you mean? What's your source? The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. R really? And the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now called the Community of Christ, and the Church of Christ Temple Lot. Which three bodies all have pieces 
of the area that will be the site of the temple when Christ comes back. Wow. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That's a big deal. I would say. But if you go north of there, you will come to Conception, Missouri, and the Great Abbey of Conception. And let us not forget uh, St. Joseph, Missouri. St. Joe. I have been there once in my life. And unfortunately, the place I stayed at, the late lamented Hotel St. Charles, made famous in the movie Paper Moon, has been destroyed. But at the time, it had one of the oldest elevators, if not the oldest, west of the Mississippi, 1876. And it was a real thrill to ride in it. But as you know, I'm in kind of a nostalgic, sentimental mood. And I have to admit, I really enjoyed that time in St. Joseph, Missouri. Must have been about 86 or 87. That's over 30 years ago. Can you imagine? I can imagine, yes. Anyhow, I've always enjoyed the parts of Missouri I've seen. I, I've been very briefly at Fort Leonard Wood and uh, places in the center of the state, but I don't know it well. And another area I'd love to go see is Hannibal, Missouri, which is, of course, the hometown of Mark Twain and uh, the setting for Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And that is the state of Missouri, the show me state. Why is it called that? Because Missourians don't take things at face value. They're the opposite of schmaltz. Got to prove it. Show me. Hmm. So they're the doubting Thomases of the world. Uh, well, of the United States, anyway. Or of the yeah. United States, yeah. It used to be that I'm from Missouri was an old, an old saying that meant, you know, I don't, I don't believe what you say just because you say it. You got to prove something. And what's with uh, people from Missouri saying Missouri? It's their it's their pronunciation. What's with people from Southern California using the definite article to describe freeways? Well, you gave me the history of that, and that is I uh, I did, but that's only because I knew it. I don't know why they say Missouri. I just know they do. Oh, okay. Well, so in other words, you don't know, but it's not. It's probably not an arbitrary thing. It, it's probably rooted in something. That'd be my guess, but okay. what I don't know. Okay. I mean, it's it's like um, why the people of the state immediately to California's north call it Oregon, Oregon, instead of Oregon. Hmm. I don't know. All right. Is it Illinois or Illinois? Who says Illinois? Some people who live there, not everyone. Hmm. Is it Chicago or Chicago? <laughs> I don't even believe that. Really? Mm -hmm. The um, the place. Uh, Is it Colorado my, or Colorado? The place my uh, my mom's family is from, um, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, her town, they just call it Bethlehem. They, you know, yeah. they sort of eliminate the, you know, the H in there. You just go, yeah. they just shorten it. So, 
Well, people from Baltimore call it Balmer. Really? That's an interesting one. Yeah, Balmer. That I could see that though. That's definitely a lot smoother. Um, Balmer. Yeah. Cool. Balmer. People from uh, Los Angeles call it Los Angeles. Oh, people. Okay. We just say LA. Yeah. Are, are, are you going into Los Angeles? No. <laughs> no. No, you'd say, you going to LA? Yeah. Although I'd say you're going into town. Well, I, you're. You're you're smack in the center, so I guess that makes sense in terms of your geographic sense. Um, well, that's true. Uh, well, it's like in Arcadia. Uh, you know, if you're gonna if um, you're gonna go driving through downtown Arcadia, uh, you know, you always say, "Don't put anything in the truck." Right. Ex- exactly. No. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> don't, load the, don't load up the truck. <laughs> Just head for the freeway oh, if you are. Oh, man. <laughs> don't drive down Huntington, Huntington Drive. <laughs> <sighs> I, uh, I do hear, though, that they, uh, they've cleared the 210 now. They, uh, they use the CHP for some reason. Apparently, they didn't trust the various local law enforcement bodies. <laughs> it's just territory. It's just turf. You know how it is. It, it, yeah, it's a turf war. Right? <laughs> <laughs> CHP throwing their weight around. <laughs> they got they got sick and tired of seven blockages on the two ten in, in a week. <laughs> So, so they they took charge for some reason of that section, and now they're monitoring it twenty four hours. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I think they thought there were too many breakdowns. <laughs> so, it's, apparently, traffic's going a lot more smoothly now. <laughs> With CH CHP escorts, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Should we hit the two ten, Chief? Ah, I will. I low for a week or so. <laughs> Till, let the state boys get tired of it. <laughs> Sick and tired of sitting out in the rain. Let me go soon enough. Don't you worry. <laughs> I bet it's business as usual, boy. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> you know, it's amazing they've got the money to monitor that stretch of highways so closely. Considering the way they're spending money in Sacramento, they'll run out of it eventually. <laughs> they can't keep it up forever. <laughs> my my advice is that if you've got anything to truck out of Arcadia, now's the time. I'd, I'd, 
I'd get it out while the going's good. <laughs> as long as you see those CHP, CHP folk up and down the 210, it's, you're good to hook. But I, I wouldn't go through Duarte if I were you. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen. These are very in-jokes, but, you know, for those of you who understand, well, no explanation is necessary. And for those of you who don't understand, nothing's possible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, stop making fun of Vincent Price in Song of Bernadette. That's not very nice. Nice. Um, okay. Uh, again, questions. yeah, questions. Before, just shameless plug. If you'd like to become a patron, you can be uh, do so for as low as five dollars uh, a month. We are almost. We don't have much of a backlog. There's only like three patron questions. So if you do become a patron, your question will get asked pretty rapidly. Uh, chances, chances are. So um, now's the time, honestly. Um, but if we honestly, if we don't get more patrons or patron questions, I'm going to have to dip into non-patron questions, which has not happened in. Uh, I I don't I honestly don't even know when the last time that's happened. That's been. I don't know four years or something like that. It's been a while. So it's going to be interesting. All you, all you, all you patient non-patrons who are just struggling out there monetarily. And you've, you've kind of put your question uh, through the website and just on a, <laughs> your day is finally coming. I have a feeling. Um, so uh, anyhow, that's that. Uh, all right. Question from young voter fraud. Um, interesting name. Um, so he says, uh, Dear Comrade Coulomb and Commissar Franchini, first of all, I'd like to start my request off with a story that took place recently. Uh, I had enjoyed a wonderful meal at the Tumblr House Commissariat. Very fine meal of unnamed fish, allegedly. When I started to feel strange, as if psychedelics had been mixed into it, or more likely grown in the food. I started to pass in and out of consciousness as I, <laughs> as I found myself going towards the elevator and almost compelled to press a strange button labeled 13. Oh, I that was unwise. I soon found myself in a strip. And then it his text is non-alphanumeric um, sort of symbols, almost like a code of some sort, a strange code. Uh, and then it, and then he goes on to say, "Anyways, I'm planning a trip to Austria in the somewhat near future." Well, that takes care of that issue. <laughs> so, okay, I don't know what happened there, um, but uh, yeah, okay. Well, I was sorry about the 13th floor. Did I tell you about the last time I went up uh, by that uh, that elevator? No, tell us. Well, it was it was an interesting thing because you know there there is no 13 on the thing. And that's why when I was on the on the elevator going up to the meditation garden, actually, uh, I see 13, and it blinks, and then the thing stops. And the door opens up, and then... I'm sorry, what were we talking about? Well, we were going on with Young Voter Fraud's question. Ah, what's that? 
He says, anyways, I'm planning a trip to Austria in the somewhat near future. I will, of course, be going to Vienna. However, I would also like to see Salzburg and Innsbruck and take the train throughout the nation so I can enjoy the scenery. Does Charles have any suggestions on what to see and do in the heart of the old empire? Would he mind telling us of them? Well, as it happens, I actually answered a similar question in the pre-show, only that was about Vienna, Budapest, and Bratislava. But I don't mind dealing with Vienna once more. So, in no particular order, the Stephansdom, the Hofburg and its various constituent museums, especially the treasure chamber, uh, Schönbrunn, the Belvedere Palace, Upper and Lower, um, the Central Friedhof, the Central Cemetery, uh, the uh, Kaisergruft, where the emperors are all enshrined and entombed under the uh, Capuchin Church. Uh, I mean, there are so many beautiful churches in Vienna. The uh, Vodovkirche, uh, where uh, which was built in Thanksgiving for Franz Josef being spared from an assassination attempt. The Rochuskirche, um, um, which is the Oratorian Church in Vienna. The uh, Minoritenkirche, which is the SSPX Church in downtown Vienna. Very historic. They just got it. The Palanakirche, which is the FSSP Church. Uh, the Deutscher Ordenhaus, the headquarters of the Teutonic Order. The Maltese Kirche, which is the church of the uh, Order of Malta. And so many wonderful places to eat in Vienna. Uh, the Zacher, the Imperial, uh, the Café Mozart, Central, Landsmann, uh, the Café Havelka, Rheintaler's Beisel, the Grecian Beisel. These are all wonderful, wonderful places to eat. Uh, Salzburg, of course, the Café Mozart again, different Café Mozart, the Blauer Gans, uh, the Golden uh, Adel, uh, the Cathedral, of course, the um, uh, Mirabel, Schloss Mirabel, the residence, which was the old Archbishop's residence. Uh, I mean, again, Salzburg is filled with worthwhile things. Innsbruck I have never been to. But I'll tell you what I want to see there. I want to see the Hofburg in Innsbruck. I want to see the golden uh, chamber where Maximilian the uh, first shrine is, although he's not the first tomb is. He's not there. He's elsewhere, but uh, he's in, uh, I think, Wiener Neustadt. But uh, the tomb he had built for himself is in Innsbruck. Uh, well, the um, cathedral in Innsbruck, a lot of beautiful churches there. Nearby in a town called Hall is the Basilica of the Sacred Hearts, uh, Heart, the Herz Jesu, which in Tirol, of which Innsbruck is the capital, uh, the Sacred Heart is a very important devotion. Uh, Tirol is uh, dedicated to the Sacred Heart. And the, uh, the uh, Basilica at Hall was actually bought it had been a monastery. It was suppressed in the 18th century, but it was bought by Franz Ferdinand before he was murdered, turned into a convent of nuns dedicated to the Sacred Heart. And although he was scheduled to preside over its rededication, he was killed. So Kaiser Karl, when he was still only the heir to the throne, took his place. So those are three 
three places, Salzburg, uh, Vienna, and Innsbruck. But it is a beautiful country. And, you know, I've traveled to Bratislava and Prague and Budapest and Ljubljana uh, in Slovenia, Zagreb in Croatia, uh, Cluj and Timisoara in Romania, Ungvar and Chernovitz and uh, Lviv, Lemberg in Ukraine. And the amazing thing about all these cities is that despite the fact that over 100 years has passed since the fall of Austria-Hungary, you can still feel it and you can still see it in all those places. Can these bones live? Mm. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> he says the second question has to do with crowns, actual phys physical objects. I was wondering if there were any crowns that would be worn on a day-to-day -day basis by their monarchs, as is often the stereotype in modern media. Is it an accurate stereotype? And if so, would Charles tell us the history of day-to-day -day crowns and why they fell out of fashion among the royalty? Well, uh, it's, it's a false stereotype if by the crowns you think of the heavy things they, they get crowned with. Uh, those were not worn every day. They were worn at the coronation, various state events. But in days gone by, kings often wore light circlets or uh, uh, coronets, somewhat like, a little bit like the tiara that some ladies wear on public occasions today. Um, well, they, they were worn during the Middle Ages, but they, they were not huge, heavy, elaborate crowns. It's just thing to uh, to uh, represent the uh, the office of the, of the king. Uh, the fashion changed. I, I don't. I couldn't tell you when. Uh, presumably, sometime between the end of the Middle Ages and the Reformation. Um, what fashion changed that they they wouldn't wear the crown anymore? The little thin circlets. Yeah. Let me see if I can. No, I, I think we know because I think, um, as, you know, as you say that, what I immediately think is Aragorn's crown. Yeah. Um, it's a small, uh, small thing. Uh, the these these big heavy ones uh, were a kind of a later development, and B were intended for. Um, were intended for uh, special ceremonial use, not, uh, you know, not the other. Yeah. All right. All right, Charles, we don't have time to research pictures of historical crowns. What um, makes you think I'm doing that? You don't know that. I can read your mind. All right. Um... <laughs> We've worked together a long time. <laughs> All righty. Um, question from Ross, who says, um, Greetings, men. Uh, on November 16th, on the feast day of St. Margaret, born of the House of Wessex and subsequent Queen of Scots, the St. Margaret Declaration was formally endorsed during a special service to celebrate the 950th anniversary of Dunferlin Abbey. It was signed by Dr. Ian Greenshields, moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, Archbishop Leo Cushley of the Catholic Church in Scotland, 
and Princess Anne, the younger sister of our new king. The Archbishop remarked that this new declaration of friendship was designed to focus on what the two churches have in common, rather than listing problems and points of friction, or grievance old or new. Given a similar agreement between the Scottish Episcopal Church and the Church of Scotland was signed last year on St. Andrew's Day, does this coming together of the three principal Christian churches in Scotland, in your minds, represent a realization or pragmatic position that closer unity could bring about a stabilization and perhaps flourishing of Christianity, or is it all in vain? Do you envision similar agreements and declarations being signed in other parts of the world? Is it sink or swim time? P.S. This comes at a time when the established church in Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, is hemorrhaging membership, merging congregations together in a disastrous way, and selling church buildings faster than ever even the Trumpster could manage. Well, uh, this is a very good question, a very important one, because it reflects, uh, let's put it this way. Going across the water, the water from Scotland to Northern Ireland, uh, you have, as you know, primarily the Catholics and the Presbyterians in Northern Ireland, descendants of the Ulster Scots, the Presbyterians, I mean. Now, they, of course, have a terrible and bloody history over many, many years, but they had a shared opposition to abortion, or at least they had had. Because, of course, the Catholic hierarchy in Ireland, shall we say, muted that opposition. Now, because of that, and because the in an area where they actually did agree, because of their disagreements and everything else, they wouldn't pull together, and the result was that abortion was foisted on Northern Ireland by the British government, with the support, oddly enough, of Sinn Féin, the Irish Nationalist Party. So... Why do I mention this? I mention it because the hierarchies of the three churches in Scotland do have something in common these days, and that is a tacit disbelief in their doctrines. In other words, it's not just that they have uh, ceased to believe in the necessity of their particular church. They have ceased to believe to a great degree in the necessity of Christ. And I know that sounds radical, doesn't it? But you look at what the what both the Catholic Church in uh, most major Western countries and the quote-unquote mainline or in Europe, the state Protestant churches have come to tolerate. And I'm not talking now about relations with each other. I'm talking about the greater society. In a weird way, this sort of coming together is the coming together of mutually weak bodies. As you say, the Church of Scotland is hemorrhaging members, but so is the Catholic Church, and so is the Episcopal Church, because none of them stand for anything. Now, again, I don't mean that as far as the Catholic Church is concerned. I don't mean that in an existential way. I mean that in terms of the current office holders. The attitude of uh, the mainline churches these days, of their leadership rather, is to the to the blandishments of the world, is me too. 
That's what our dear Holy Father in Rome says, really. Hence the difference of opinion between himself and the National Conference of Catholic Bishops over how to deal with the presidency. Um, you know, in the Netherlands, about 10 years ago, there are three Protestant churches, the, the major Protestant churches, the Dutch Reformed Church, the Christian Reformed Church, which originated as a conservative revolt against perceived liberalism in the, in the Dutch Reformed Church, and the Dutch Lutheran Church merged into the Dutch Protestant Church. But this was not out of strength. It was out of weakness. Christianity in the Netherlands, you're talking about hemorrhaging. It's, it's right and left. The only way that this sort of hemorrhaging can be stopped is if and when and until the churches begin preaching what they were begun preaching. Uh, you'll notice that the State Church of Scotland, the uh, Episcopal Church of Scotland, and the Catholic Church will not put up any meaningful resistance to the various that they have accepted from on down. But you see, if you don't stand for anything, you may think that by going along to get along, you'll somehow benefit. But you won't if you're a church. If you, if you, you will just lose people. So, you know, I love Dunfermline Abbey, and of course, I'm always glad when people are getting along. But until and unless those uh, dear reverend churchmen regain a sense of the necessity of Christianity and the necessity of its effect on the world around them, they'll continue to hemorrhage. Yeah, you know, uh, this uh, great uh, question, Ross. Uh, two images jump out of my mind quite immediately. Um, the first, uh, I think you'll enjoy. It's from one of my all-time favorite movies, I don't mind saying, but it's the um, the image of Robert the Bruce and um, William Wallace shaking, shaking hands, and William Wallace begging him to unite the clans, and they do this very manly, firm handshake. Um, and so, I mean, that's nice, right? Um, but, you know, the second image, uh, you know, I always go back to my Walking Dead metaphor about the modern world and in terms of describing the motivations of people and what people need to do to survive, what the faith needs to do to survive. Um, so, you know, this is very much a survival tactic, right? You've got two, you've got like two colonies of people who are doing very poorly and there's a zombie apocalypse going on. So they decide to merge. So that's a good start, right? That's a good start. But you also know how have to know how to do things. You have to know how to. Uh, you get, you you need engineers that know how to put up walls. You need f people that know how to farm. You need you, you need to be able to do things, right? Wait and a minute. So you, mean, you, you mean to say? <laughs> hold on, hold on. You mean to say theologians who believe in God? 
I mean, well, well, see, the other thing too, see, you said something and it seemed radical, um, where, you know, um, Christ is a necessity, you know, for salvation, um, or, you know, just some belief in Christ. Right. But to me, you don't even need to be Christian to be against abortion. You just, you just need to be of goodwill on some well, that's, level. That's uh, that's true to be against abortion, but I mean the, the sad truth of the matter is that in ter- in religious terms, most mainstream Christian bodies. I'm not talking about evangelicals. I'm not talking about the We Freeze. I'm not talking about traditionalist Catholics. But you remember what Benedict the Sixteenth said about Catholics in general back in 2016 that we have become functional universalists. What is a universalist? A universalist is someone who believes that everyone is going to heaven. Now, when you say that, what have you just done? You don't need Christ. You don't need the church. You don't need the sacraments. All you need is to be nice. If, if that, maybe not even that. All you've got to do is breathe. And... He said the problem, of course, with that is that not only does it destroy the missionary sense, the evangelistic impulse, but it destroys any need for the person to remain Catholic. Now, if that's true for us, imagine the state churches of Northern Europe, like our own mainline churches in America, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, Congregationalist. Um, United Church of Christ, that is. Um, these bodies are all hemorrhaging people because long ago, they really ceased to believe in, uh, leadership, I should say, really ceased to believe in the necessity uh, of Christ. And that, it's a hard saying, but it's true. And it's evidenced by the fact that they all believe that they could alter their doctrines by voting. Or, in the case of the Scandinavian state churches, by an act of parliament. Hence, female bishops. Yeah. Now, when you say that, what you're really saying is that you're an organization based upon a fairy tale. An idea that you can alter at will. Right. Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of poisonous reinforcing things because you've got the thing where it's like, well, you don't need Christ, but then enter in, uh, what is it, Taylor Deschardins, where the world is becoming increasingly perfect or whatever. Um, And so you have all this. And as you say, you don't need to do anything except be nice. This reinforces an already dominant characteristic of society, which is the path of least resistance. That's a very important concept that um, people don't talk about really, but like in real life and every day as a manager, you know, in situations you realize you have a choice where you can, um, I mean, honestly, it's like Pope Benedict's like adapted quote, right? The world offers you comfort, but you are not made for comfort. You are made for greatness. That sort of embodies this, this very basic choice for all your little choices on a daily basis is you could go for greatness or you can go for comfort, the path of least resistance. Uh, 
Um, So that um, in the macro, obviously, lends itself to not even um, any interest, any action, any faith, any prayer. Um, It just kind of destroys everything. So we're just sort of these blobs sitting in front of electrical boxes. Um, Sorry to say. But um, that's what we're fighting against, honestly, the path of least resistance, um, and a, a lack of faith. Um, and, that, so. and that is something that the clerics, the high clerics, not all of them, but most of them will not address. Yeah. Because, of course, they're part of the problem. Well, you know, we saw this in COVID, too. You know, uh, I've got, some, you know, going to some of these masses, you know, the, the priests are trying to address, you know, the lack of attendance now. Um, again, lack of faith, path of least resistance. And the priests opened up the door when you did, um, you know, what spiritual communion and perfect active contrition and you're good. You don't need the sacraments. Wow. What a, what a load, you know, so now we can dedicate Sundays to what really matters football. Um, you know, you know, the thing that really drove me crazy during the lockdown was parish site after parish site. Saying, make a perfect condition, spiritual the communion, donate here. Yeah. Uh, you know what? Two out of three. <laughs> my donation will be as spiritual <laughs> as my communion and my confession. And that, uh, you know, it's, they complain, but whose fault? Because what they showed was that they really didn't believe in their own mumbo-jumbo. Right. And, you know, you have, uh, I feel like there has been a great shakeup among parishes in the L.A. area um, in that you've got, you know, people would tolerate, I think, certain parishes. You know, you've got certain adjacent parishes within a reasonable driving distance. And some parishes just, you know, weren't there for people. You know, yep. they, they just like, oh, no. OK. And we're going to do all these ridiculous restrictions. We're just going to we're going to w- worry more about your health than your actual faith. Um, and your soul. And those parishes are dying at a, an expedited pace now. And you've got these other parishes that are have picked up the slack from these other yeah. parishes, I've noticed. And um it's an interesting well, type of survival of the fittest, honestly. I mean, we I knew we knew this was going to happen, um, and, but COVID has really, I felt like, expedited this process of bad parishes dying out, good parishes thriving. You know, well, not not to name names because you know I don't uh, I don't <laughs> do that. Yeah, but you'll remember when we had that bootleg confession ring going. Right. Well, that's what that, that's my frame of reference, right? Because like I go to his mass all the time now. You know. Yeah. Well, why wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, they were there when you needed him, right? When you needed, and and he was there when you needed him, and uh, the closer parishes weren't. Yeah, and it comes down to, and that's also very human. Admittedly, I'm a very emotional person. I'm making, on some level, an emotional decision where, you know, you go with the guy who, you know, stuck you, by you. you. You surround yourself with people who are there for you in your darkest hour. And you you go away from people who just say, "Well, you're on your own, right?" That's not, that's how humans work. Uh, 
Not me. I, I, I tend to gravitate toward people who uh, basically give me the back of the hand. <laughs> I, f- I find that much more, much more comforting and more real, uh... you know. With, with people who really love me, I'm, I'm always thinking, what's in it for them? Yeah. With people who just, you know, smack me aside, that's honest. I trust that. That's this. honest. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Respect the honesty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I hate your sticky guts, Kulo. You know, I kind of like you. <laughs> <laughs> You've got no, enough I mean, respect to not lie to my face. Yes, exactly. You, you're I'm a like truth these, teller. You tell it I'm how like it is. I'm like all these these sycophants, you know, <laughs> my mom and dad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, said said nobody ever. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, seriously, one one thing too that uh, no mentioning Dunfermline Abbey, apropos of nothing except the Abbey itself. One of the most poignant moments of my life was uh, showing uh, Princess Maria of Romania, the youngest daughter of the late King Michael, around Dunfermline, because I brought her to the grave of King Robert the Bruce, of whom uh, she was a descendant. And I stood there while she prayed at his grave, and I, it, it was quite the feeling. I do love Scotland, I have to admit. I do. Although I'm wearing the ordinary tartan right now and not the not oh. the uh, McKinnon tartan. Got to watch out for that. Well, the ordinary tartan? Yeah. Just because it represents all three ordinariates? Yeah. Okay. That upsets we got any people. other questions? Yes. Oh, well. <laughs> well, upset away. Uh, Helvicio says, Blessed Stepanak has apparently had his canonization held up because it was protested by Orthodox clergy. Has a Catholic saint's canonization ever been held up by the protests of non-Catholics before? For example, I imagine St. Josephat would never have been canonized if Catholics were worried about offending the Orthodox Church. And the Orthodox Church never cares when they canonize people who... Rome wouldn't like. No, the answer is not since not before Vatican II, but in recent years, um, the uh, prattling of non-Catholics has held up a number of saints: uh, Father Deon, the great apostle of the Sacred Heart, Queen Isabel of Spain. You know, and it's a terrible habit that the uh, one among many that the uh, people currently in charge are uh, filled with, but. You know, they'll age and die, and once again, we'll get back to business. Okay. Uh, Anita sent in a bunch of really good questions, Um, so we're going to end the show on her three questions. Uh, She says, Dear gentlemen, I hope things are going well for you, that you have a happy Thanksgiving, and that Charles continues to mend. He and his health are in my prayers. Thank you. I would like to hear Charles discuss a topic that, as a Catholic and historian, I think he is especially qualified to address, namely the United States in a supernatural light. In other words, the role of America in God's providence, as opposed to the civic mythology about America that we were brought up in, of particular interest would be these points. So we'll discuss them uh, one at a time. 
What might be some of the reasons God allowed the American Revolution to succeed, even though it was a rebellion against legitimate authority? Well, there's a lot, a lot of rebellions against legitimate authority to succeed. Uh, and usually it's a punishment of one kind or another on somebody or other. Usually the hapless people who have to live under the new government. But in our case, uh, despite all that, it did result, because God brings good out of evil, it did result in the liberation of the church in uh, what was then the 13 states. And, uh, you know, under the Constitution, we had the right to um, evangelize, which, uh, however, we rather shamefully neglected to do. But we had the opportunity. It was there for us. We just didn't take it. Hmm. Uh, what special gifts or attributes did God give the United States as a nation for the furtherance of his kingdom? The bringing together of peoples from all over the world and all over Europe um, in a way that was quite unique. Um, the, you know, and I, when, again, had America's Catholics evangelized her, she could have been a tremendous base for the evangelization of the rest of the world. Uh, it, it hasn't escaped me that things American tend to go everywhere. And, you know, when you look at something like uh, take our American Christmas, it is such a creation of so many different peoples and cultures. It, it, it really is, when you stop and, and analyze it, we get Santa Claus from the Dutch. The Christmas tree is German. A lot of our food customs, unless you're ethnic or English, are are. Christmas carols come from all over Europe. Um, it's almost a, a microcosm of the country as a whole. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. I mean, I, I, uh, I love American Christmas, albeit in America. <laughs> I, I don't like seeing Santa Claus in England. Uh, you know, they've got Father Christmas. They don't need Santa Claus. But I, I um, you know, it, it, it could have been something extraordinary, uh, a coming together of the, of the peoples of the world in a, a deep harmony, which then, as I say, could have been exported back. But again, it wasn't. Um, I was listening to a Father Ripperger sermon. Um, he had an interesting take on it. He... Um, I mean, in addition to what you said, um, he had mentioned something else, um, which was uh, America is very blessed uh, geologically with resources. We uh, have, um, you know, so part of the plan was to be charitable, be prosperous and charitable with the rest of the world. Um, but I, th I think he said something like... Um, the uh, generational spirit of America is like fraud or something. 
So, so which I believe, right? Like that makes sense. It definitely lines up. Um, well, we, we 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 definitely are the nation of the flimflam man. I mean, <laughs> we uh, we know how to sell people uh, swampland in Florida. <laughs> exactly. So that that rings true to me. What Father Ripperger says there. So. You know, we take all this, pro- you know, all these resources, all these prosperity, and we just sort of misuse them, right? Um, and that's not how it should be. Would you, would you consider, I mean, going back to colonial days, would you consider how much of the country's history involves fraudulent land claims? <laughs> and, you know, colonies of, of, of in, in the middle of nowhere. It's overwhelming, right? It's just like... It really is. I, I think... You know, I, I never thought of this until this second, but if somebody starting probably with uh, Sir Walter Raleigh and the Lost Colony, if somebody did a history of fraud in America, I mean, it, it would be an encyclopedia. It would never end. <laughs> I mean, you, you think of the Teapot Dome scandal, you think of every, every burst and bubble we've ever had, the Great Depression, which was started by what? Selling out margin. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean... It it uh, well for that matter. I mean, my gosh, the the biggest the biggest fraud of all, uh, FDR, the gold exchange standard. Right. You know what is our money, but a, tr- a tremendous fraud. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, of course, because you know I don't want to get in the way of people's fun, but uh, you know it's it, it's I boy, that's 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 great. Yeah. We we we. Well, uh, look at our elections. Yeah, you know, vote, vote for, vote for my man, and everything will be great. All we have to do is get uh, John X into Congress, or City Hall, or the Governor's Mansion, or the White House, and everything's going to be great, ladies and gentlemen. And we know it isn't true, but it doesn't stop us never. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you know, we just. Uh, do you remember uh, Jim Jab? Jim Jab? Uh, yeah, like the, card the dolphin. Ca- oh no. Um, no. Uh, well, uh, Jim Jab is this. Uh, what do they do? They they basically put your face into singing, dancing cards. Okay. But they had. They used to do. They don't do it anymore, sadly. But they used to do every election year a thing on the election, and the one they had when. Uh, uh, what's his face? Kerry was running against Bush and uh, uh, gosh, the dead guy from Arizona. Uh, McCain. Uh, yes, McCain. Uh, they they had a terribly funny song, par- parody song with the cartoon called It's Time for Some Campaigning. And it will promise you anything you want to hear and spin you around and kick you in the rear. Gosh. <laughs> It's time for some campaigning. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, anyway. It's what interesting else like thinking thinking like that, um, honestly. It's like a, a yearly ritual of fraud. You know, it's yeah. weird. Well, uh, the best part is that a lot of us, if not most of us, on some level know there's, there's more than a touch of fraud. Yeah. But you know what? It doesn't stop us. Yeah. I mean, I 
this midterm election, does anyone know if uh, if uh, the Republicans uh, won the House? I thought they did. I thought they lost the Senate and got the House. Well, there's a trade. Um, let me see. Um, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure they got the House. Uh, Are we sure about the Senate or are they waiting for Georgia? Uh, House results, two, 218 GOP, 212 Democrats. Um, Democrats lost nine seats. Republicans gained eight seats. Um, and then let's look at the Senate. Um, uh, sorry. Um, it has actually the GOP at 49 and, uh, the Democrats at 48. Uh, two seats held by independent senators who caucus with the Democrats. I don't. So I don't. Yeah, know. That's, that's 50 for the Democrats. So basically, the one the one seat is still up for grabs in Georgia. I guess so. But oh, see, runoff runoff election will be scheduled. Raf, Raphael, Raf, uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. That's interesting. Yeah. But see, that doesn't actually matter that much because if it's 50-50, guess who has the deciding vote? Um, The, well, what, the Speaker of the House? No, that's the Senate. It's the Senate. Ooh, civics lesson. So who has the deciding vote in the Senate um, if it's 50-50? Yeah. Well, I mean, I would normally say like the Vice President or something. Yes. Oh, yes. okay. Because the chairman pro tem of the Senate is only pro tem, and he's one of the hundred. Oh. It is the vice president who will have the uh, deciding vote every time. And who is the vice president? I don't want to think about it. I don't want to. I don't like. <laughs> you don't want to think about that. Well, I don't blame you. But but here's the good news: they don't have two thirds of the Senate. Well, yeah. Uh, and the, the downside, of course, is that you've got those 18 Republicans who voted for the quote-unquote Defense of Marriage Act. I don't want to think about that either. You're going into these areas of bad thoughts. I thought we oh, were doing so th- well, Charles. Well, that's because I'm feeling sentimental. But uh, I, I believe that the Senate whips should apply them to those 18. Ooh, bad touch. Like that. In public, of course. Well, yeah, well, so what would actually happen? So it's like, it, like, what's the well, deterrence I, from Republicans doing that, right? Like, are they going to suffer for only, that? Uh, well, if, if, the, if the Republican Senate leadership want to make them suffer, they could suffer. I suppose they could dump them off committees. There are a lot of ways to play around with people. Deny them access to Senate pages. No, stop. They they abolished the Senate page program. Don't don't say that. You give the implication that there are horribly disgusting and immoral people sitting in the Capitol building, even as we speak. And that's not a good thought. You know, you'll never know what I learned in school today. You'll never guess what I learned in school today. What did you learn in school today, <laughs> dear little boy of mine? <laughs> you can sing it. 
Um, Learned our government must be strong. It's always right and never wrong. Our <laughs> leaders are the finest of men, and we elect them again and again. That's what I learned <laughs> in school today. That's what I learned in school. Oh, now speaking, now that does get me nostalgic. Yeah. That takes me back to the civil rights days. I'm about ready to sing We Shall Overcome. <laughs> Boy, can the Seacaucus 7 really return? <laughs> All right. Uh, final question for this episode. Um, again, from Anita. She says, why up to now has God protected the United States to a greater extent than he seems to have protected the rest of the world? For instance, although we have had our national convulsions, like the Bloody War of 1861 to 1865, we have lost many men in foreign wars. We are currently ruled by criminals and incompetents. We've escaped having two world wars fought on our own soil. We're not being hit as hard by economic woes as the old world is being hit now. I get the sense that God has gone easier on us, far than we have deserved. Uh, although it would be folly to presume that this can't change. Well, all true. And I would just say two words, not yet. I mean, you know... I hope it doesn't happen, obviously. But more and more people worry about a civil war because the country is becoming more and more polarized. Um, the leadership is ever stupider. That that can't go on indefinitely. And yet, as the uh, voters of California, Vermont, and Michigan, and Kentucky, and some other state showed us uh, the population, uh, the majority of the, of the populace in those states anyway, uh, have no trouble murdering infants. I think it's a good thing, not a bad thing. You know what was surprising in the California election? Because, you know, the Prop 1. Yeah. You know what was shocking to me is that Newsom got like 61% of the vote or something like that. Prop 1 got several percentage points higher. It was at like 65 or 68 percent. I didn't even understand. Like, so that, that like crossed party lines. Yeah, of course it did. So, I'm continuously being shocked by Californians. Why? They want to die. They're suicidal. Apparently, I don't know. To, to me, that that's weird. Um, well, don't don't forget how many Californians, native Californians, have left the state. There's a reason for that. It's not magic. It's getting more and more toxic, and the the scumbags that run the state are going to continue to vampirize it, and they're they um, enfranchise people who are not big taxpayers who do not really have, I mean, let's put it this way. Their idea is to empower the recipients, not the providers of the state's monies. It's really that simple. So what happens if you do that? Well, several things. You tend to drive out the providers. So eventually the system will crack. And what these scumbags in Sacramento will do, I don't know. Um, I really don't know. 
And it's, you know, when, when my family and I came to California in the mid-60s, it was the place where people went. It was the land of opportunity. And now it's a place people flee unless you're homeless. In which case, you could come to California, get a tent, and the uh, Democratic Party will make sure you're registered to vote. Let's um, let's steer this into an interesting direction because um, this kind of deals with um, you know you you get the certain sense as an American that some of these things you know perhaps naively that this certain thing could never happen here. Um, so, um, my mother-in-law keeps, uh, looking at things and saying, this is going to be uh, the civil war. Um, you have said this too. Like you said, this is what lead up to civil war looks like. No. Um, that seems unreal in this day and age. Um, and, and by unreal, I'm not saying unlikely or that I disagree. I'm just saying like, I, I don't have that sort of imagination, um, and so, therefore, I don't even know what that looks like or no, can't I, even begin I know, to speculate, you know. I, I know, and in, and in a very real sense, neither can anyone else. Yeah. It's a bit like World War One. Yeah. Nobody knew what that war was going to look like. And so, but part of, part of that is, like, I don't know how people differentiate the sides, you know what I mean? Like, well, like even it, even in the Civil War, it's like okay, it's more delineated, if you will. Whereas now in modern days, everything was so intermeshed. Unless you've 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 got a uniform on or something, you know. No, that's that's very true. And and what it will look like, I can't begin to tell you. What I can tell you is that when I was in Ukraine in August, I was in a town called Bucha. And I went into a department store where there had been fighting between the Ukrainians and Russians. It was all, you know, it was a wreck. There were major line brands and signs for them and all that scattered all over the place. Three months before, they had been fighting in that very store. And the thing is, you know, when you go to the third world and you see things like that, apart from the exotic setting, you're almost used to that kind of combat in the third world. They do it a lot. And, you know, you can say I'm being racist or whatever you want. I'm not being racist. It is what it is. And you're used to it, in a sense. Maybe you shouldn't be. Maybe if we weren't used to it, things might be different. But there it is. In Ukraine, because it's a European country, and again, with the major brands and all that, it could be anywhere in Europe or America. And I really felt like I was in a set from The Walking Dead. It was a horrific feeling. You know, um, a lot of people have been annoyed with me for coming out of Ukraine not sufficiently pro or anti-Russian, not sufficiently pro or anti-Ukrainian. Well, what I came out of there with was a real horror of the war itself. Um, 
And I desperately don't want to see that in our country. Yeah, I think you, I think you've said something like, you know, when you look at the actual devastation and you're in it, um, sort of the theory and the right and wrong and this and that sort of just like completely fades. Yep, it sure does. And I remember walking along a street with not entirely, but a number of bombed out houses and so on. And this kid, maybe nine or 10 years old, rode on his bike past us. And I couldn't help but wonder what that kid's going to grow into. You know? Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Like what, what kind of um, childhood does that spawn? Yeah. And what kind of adulthood will that childhood spawn? Presuming yeah. he makes right. it. Right. Uh, you know, and, and of course, that obviously that area had been only relatively briefly occupied for three months before the Russians pulled out to concentrate where they are now. Um, we had the adventure of the missiles in Poland, the missile in Poland, which uh, the Ukrainians, of course, said, oh, it must be Russian. But NATO and the U.S. say, no, it was probably Ukrainian missiles gone off course for which I'm grateful because that could have been World War III right there. And of course, if we, uh, if we get into the war, it will be World War III. And that in itself, what would that be like? I can't, I don't know. I can't picture it. Nuclear? Mm, I don't know. But I know one other thing, and that is at the end of the day, God is in control. And if we have either or both a nuclear war or a civil war, guess what? It's he's not out to lunch. Um, that's no. a, that's a hugely important point. You know, I see. A, uh, I have secular acquaintances where they really get caught up in this, and I feel terrible for them because they don't need to. Because there's nothing you can do. It's just no. You know, it's we're not just uh, molecular you know, molecules bouncing around in chaos, you know, there, there is purpose and order to life. And, you know, you have to believe that and you have to have faith as a foundation. Um, yeah. And, you know, if these things happen, they will be deserved punishments. Yeah. And that, that's just the way it is. It's not, and it's not something I like to say. It's not something I like to think about. I mean, again, I often think of St. Augustine and St. Ambrose, who were loyal citizens of the empire, but were all too aware that it was falling to pieces. Um, you know, what do you do? Well, do the best you can, that's all. For me, you know, that fear and just fear of, of worrying about this or, you know, nuclear war, et cetera, whatever, ends up in me translating to making sure my oil lamp is lit, to use so, the metaphor, yeah. right? If your oil lamp is lit, you're you're set, right? Like you're, yeah. you're ready. Um, so that's how it... You know, it manifests itself uh, in scrupulosity toward myself and, you know, confession and 
making sure I've dotted my I's, crossed my T's. You know what I mean? No, if you're, as Colonel McIntyre told me when I was 14, if you're ready for the end of your world, you'll be ready for the end of the world. Right. Now, having said that, though, I I think of a uh, poster that I saw back in the 80s, back when the Soviets were still going concern, and it was comic book style. You know how the old comic books were with the dotted, yeah. So you see this this blonde, uh, beautiful blonde girl crying, and she says, "Nuclear war, there goes my career." <laughs> <laughs> A model's eye view. <laughs> uh. <laughs> my real question is, if a nuclear war went out tomorrow, right? And all the major cities of the United States and uh, Russia were hit with nuclear missiles. Would I still be able to get my usual seat at Musso and Franks? <laughs> yes. See, these are the questions that agitate me. Yes, but it would be different people serving you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is this is our head waiter, Ivan. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I, I don't know. I do you remember the movie Miracle Mile? Sounds familiar. We came out in the eighties uh, again, just before the Soviet Union collapsed. And it's a nuclear war is set in L.A. Mm-hmm. And a good a good piece of the action takes place in a coffee shop on Wilshire Boulevard. And I, you know, that's that's where I'd want to go. If I knew there was going to be, if I was back in L.A. and I knew there was going to be a nuclear war in uh, two hours, maybe not a, a coffee shop on Wilshire Boulevard, but I'd go to Musso's. <laughs> You know, I mean, why, why not, right? I have an atomic cocktail. <laughs> I'd have my rosary with me, you know, and say, say, uh, say a few decades in between, uh, you know, in between uh, cocktails. Definitely. And then, poof. Yep. But on a happier note, because we do have to be nostalgic. Yeah. And I'm going to be very, very nostalgic. I am going to recommend, ladies and gentlemen, to all of you, that this Thanksgiving, you get off the internet a book by Robert Haven Schofler in the archive section. In fact, to show you how close I am to this, I will give you Chief, the I will give you the link which you could post. Robert Haven Schofler, the editor of the American Holidays series. Uh, I will give you the link to his book on Thanksgiving. Because, ladies and gentlemen, although Thanksgiving, because of its Puritan connections, is not really... I've always been a little uneasy about it. In my current schmaltzy mood, I'm I'm going to push it. I'm going to push it. So, 
I will give you the uh, whatever it is. A lot of his thing is uh, Lincoln's birthday. I don't want that. I want Thanksgiving. Arbor Day. No. There we go. Thanksgiving. It's origin, celebration, and spirit. There we go. As related in prose and verse. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the ultimate Thanksgiving anthology. You want Schmaltz? I got it for you in a big way. All right. Just send it to me, and I'll post it in the um, description of the YouTube video for those of you listening. I'll post the link there um, so you guys you can go. enjoy it. Oh, and the way are the way back machine internet. Oh no, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, there we go. It's the it's the archive. The archive, yeah. Look at that cover. That American is, holiday. That looks like uh, the Nazi symbol, right? No, it's not the Nazi symbol. Our American holidays. And notice it's R. Our American holidays. Yeah. Isn't that great? That's nice. R. Yep. That makes you feel good inside. Solid. It does. Yeah. It does. Our American holidays. That's just wonderful. We need more schmaltz, I'm telling you. Hmm. I'm going to actually bookmark this. That looks pretty good. It is good. <laughs> it is good. And just to go with it, to show that I'm, uh, uh, to show that I'm, I'm nothing if not schmaltzy. A uh, a, a um, visual image, which I think uh, I think should really get everyone into the the mood for the season. All right, as long as it's not copyrighted. Well, I'm sure it isn't, considering how old it is. Okay. Are you ready? I'm ready. There you go. This is very... I feel like you've shown us things like this for like the 4th of July and stuff. I have, but that's for Thanksgiving. All right. And you then- notice... Columbia, that's the chick that used to represent America alongside Uncle Sam. All right, give me a second. Um, Okay, uh, let's get it on the screen. Thanksgiving's greetings. It's up on the screen for everyone to enjoy. You've got a girl in the middle surrounded by two huge turkeys. Yeah. Now the girl in the middle is Colombia, the representative of the United States. Hmm. Have you never seen her before? I mean, I feel like I have in the Fourth of July one, right? Like, um, yeah. I felt like uh, it seems like it's a motif of sorts. Um, it was. Yeah. Colombia is is uh, another picture of her, which I think you'll appreciate. There you go. How's that? This is the one I uh, you sh- you've uh, shown before. Um, all right, let me get it up for everybody. Um, 
All right, here's Columbia. There we go. There's big picture. Um, yeah, the anchor and then the hawk with the the spe the uh, the arrows. That's like your Puritan's Empire picture. Uh, well, it's, it's the bald headed eagle. It's the or, yeah. It's the bald eagle. Yeah, and you, you see, she's got symbols of agriculture and industry. The Statue of Liberty is behind her. The flag. Yeah, that's Columbia. You know, she uh, she was. Well, I mean, the, the Hail Columbia, Columbia, the gem of the ocean. She's one of the oldest symbols of our United States. All of them, each and every one, without exception. All 50, plus their territories and other connected places like D.C., <laughs> other zones of riffraff. But, no, seriously, ladies and gentlemen, tis the season for schmaltz. And I heartily encourage everyone to really, really jump into it with all four feet. Absolutely. Um, before we sign off, did you want a special prayer request? I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Tuesday, the 22nd, that is the day after you watch this, I'll be going back into the hospital for some consultation on my condition without wanting to um, give you any loathsome details, uh, suffice to say that uh, I may be facing another procedure. Um, so I would appreciate very much your prayers on November the 22nd. Um, nothing life-threatening, but um, inconvenient and annoying. Hmm. So I would appreciate it, be assured that I will offer up my discomforts, etc., for um, all of you, and you can uh, make it up to me by praying for me. I want to say also that when I first went to the hospital, and again, uh, at the time of my birthday, I was very touched by all of the expressions of uh, uh, prayer and, and affection and so on. I was very, very touched. Thank you so much. Um, if we've been able to do you any good, that's why we're here. You know, the the um, we're all of us navigating our way through all sorts of things. One of the um, elements of Catholic Twitter I've gotten rather more interested in are the people who put out various prayer requests. It's a great deal of misery in the world, ladies and gentlemen. It always has been. The line uh, from the Salve Regina mourning and weeping in this veil of tears. They're not just poetry. The world is a wonderful place. It's an enjoyable place, but of course it has its dark side. And all of us have to go through the one without forgetting the other. Both ways. In the midst of our joys, we should never get forget the difficulties and pains, especially of others. And in the midst of our difficulties and pains, we should never forget the joys, especially of others. So with that, um, I've got a question for you. Go ahead. What is it if it's Monday? It's off the menu. And the soul you save. Maybe you're wrong. See you next week, gang. See ya. <laughs>